0: But for understanding between civilizations, a civilization has to know itself first. You have to know who you are before you can enter into a relationship with somebody else, right? So for Western civilization, we have to know who we are. And one of the important, not the only, but one of the important ingredients of Western civilization is Christian culture.
1: Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback and Tom Sarouf.
2: Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Stewart, who is the chair of the History Department at the University of Mary in North Dakota. He teaches courses in history and in the Catholic Studies program, which he helped create at UMary. He received his B.A. in Humanities and Catholic Culture at Franciscan University before going overseas to pursue graduate studies in modern intellectual history at the University of Edinburgh. He is the author of a number of books, including Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, The Church in the Age of Reformations, which was co-authored with his wife, Barbara Stewart, and Christopher Dawson, A Cultural Mind in the Age of the Great War. He is also the faculty advisor and visionary behind one of ISI's newest campus societies, the Dawson Society, named after Christopher Dawson, whom we will be talking about today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stewart.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me
2: today. Before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Dr. Stewart, great to be with you. and Great to have you with us. Can we start by having you tell us your background to begin to hone in on Dawson? how and why you came to dedicate yourself to studying his work, his thought, and his life.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in rural Michigan. Happened to grow up not far, just 20 miles or so, from the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal in Macosta, Michigan. And uh, so I met Annette Kirk when I was just in the finishing my university experience at Steubenville, where I first was educated in the thought of Christopher Dawson. And Annette at the Kirk Center opened up a possibility of, of studying Dawson after I graduated, and that's now just over 20 years ago. And so I kind of consider that like the beginning of my researches and work that then led me abroad into archives in England and America and just a, a great adventure.
1: Are you, you were at Steubenville. We, there was an event a few weeks ago that a few ISI staff members were at, but I'm also in Pittsburgh. So Steubenville is an interesting place because when I was you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, I was surrounded by so many brilliant Catholic minds and Steubenville, you know, is maybe 45 minutes away. And it wasn't until I left that I realized just how, you know, how much of a gem those two places were for Catholic education specifically. And I meet so many people who, you know, have, did their graduate education, including one of our fellow colleagues at Steubenville. So uh, happy to hear that you were in that area and have experienced it as well. So if you could, you know, give us a bird's eye view of Christopher Dawson and his life and his main thesis and, and points of emphasis in his writing and perhaps giving us a context as well into the, the age that he was writing in. Sure.
0: Yeah. So Christopher Dawson, uh, 1889 to 1970, he was uh, an independent scholar, uh, English scholar, a historian of culture, and he wrote over 20 books and uh, a couple not- notable uh Achievements were his Gifford lectures that he gave at the University of Edinburgh on sort of a world famous lecture series on religion in the late 1940s. He was elected to the British Academy and he uh, ended his career as professor of Catholic studies at Harvard University. So it's a little bit about him. His context is two, two major pieces of context that I want to mention here. One is the post-war, as in post-Great War, generation, right? So he's maturing intellectually in the 1920s and 30s and responding to the new kind of crisis that's emerging out of the First World War in European identity. And he's responding to it as sort of through his bedrock theological and philosophical principles as a, as a Catholic scholar and, and, and convert from high Anglicanism. But he's doing that by engaging with the modern social sciences, not just history, but also anthropology and sociology and comparative religion. And this was a really unusual move in the sort of second context that Dawson was part of, which was sort of the, the, the Catholic intellectual world in England. So figures like D.K. Chesterton and Graham Greene and other people like that who are kind of well known in, in literary and others in theological circles, Dawson was one who was in the historical and, and social science circles. So that really provided an opportunity for him to, to represent a, an important moment, I think, in the development of the Catholic intellectual tradition by relating the social sciences through the concept of culture, which we can talk more about in a little bit, but the concept of culture relating that to the Catholic intellectual and, and conservative
2: traditions. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe we could hone in right away on what culture is, if culture is maybe the at the center of what Dawson was, of Dawson's intellectual projects, what is culture? How would he define or conceptualize what culture is and what its kind of constitutive, constitutive elements are?
0: Yeah. Well, so first of all, the context, again, the Great War was a time of like the crisis of culture, right? So you have the, the sort of the, uh, the shell shock of the First World War leads into a kind of a culture shock afterward. And so in the early 1920s was a really fruitful time for thinking about culture because there were two major traditions of, of thinking about culture that were kind of coming together. One, it was back to the classical world, culture as in like cultivation of, you know, the, in the agriculture and cultivation of the mind through somebody like Joseph Pieper. Later representative of that way of thinking about culture, you know, truth, beauty and goodness are really important and really matter. Okay, so that was one deep tradition of the idea of culture. But the other one was rising up at the time of Edward Tyler in the 1870s in his book, Primitive Culture, and is the anthropological conception of culture. So culture as a common way of life. Right. Common way of life. And so all peoples have a culture. And so therefore, there's a proper kind of what would be called cultural relativism and understanding, look, these people have way of life and their own values over here. These people have a different set and we need to try to understand, you know, in order to bridge relationships between different groups. Yeah. So there's a tension, as you can see, I think already between these two ideas of culture. One tries to be universal and is focused on you know, what's true and unchanging. And the other focuses on what's local and what's different and what's relative to a different people. And there's a tension there. And Dawson is right in the middle. He doesn't want to reject either one. He wants to bring both of those together.
1: And how would you compare, you mentioned, I am I'm reading Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory right now. And there's quite a few, and Peeper is one of them as well. Some of these great 20th century Catholic uh, writers and authors, where would you say Dawson's intellectual contributions kind of Where are the parallels, but also what did he present that was so much different than a lot of these other, you know, intellectual and, you know, maybe artistic as well contributions?
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, he's, so he's focused on the history of culture. So he, you know, know, he, Part of culture, of course, is literature, right? But Dawson is, is linking the different elements of culture. Culture is sort of a gathering concept, you know, literature, politics, religion, economics, it kind of fits together, right? So that holistic view, I think, is really what Dawson brings to the table. And then other people like, say, T.S. Eliot and David Jones and different poets and things who he was friend with, friends with, that's what they loved about Dawson was that really super broad-mindedness that could take a look at any culture in the world from ancient history to the present, which is what Dawson did, and, and show how the different elements of culture related together. And so the other thinkers around him really saw that as such a valuable contribution. There's a, there's a letter from, from C.S. Lewis to, to Dawson talking about how he had just got one of the copies of Dawson's um, Religion and Culture book, one of his Gifford lectures. And he was so excited reading it, he spilled gravy on it, and was just really excited to, to engage with Dawson's so that's that's the main thing that he brings in, that, that broad-mindedness of culture that links all these different elements together to try to understand what's going on beneath the surface of history.
2: One of the things I really appreciated about reading Dawson and both the uh, Dynamics of World History, which is an, I, an ISI book, and your book, Christopher Dawson, A Cultural Mind in the Age of the Great War, was that Dawson was, that broad-mindedness that you mentioned, Dawson is not, he was taking a much more broad view and willing to engage with things that maybe some of those neo-scholastics or more philosophical type thinkers weren't really interested in or were more resistant to. So I was especially taken with the complexity that came about from his analysis of the material elements of culture. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how Dawson wants to, I guess, integrate in a way the material elements and preconditions of culture like geography, landscape, geology, with the more spiritual, religious, and political, philosophical elements that make a culture?
0: Yeah, we could talk about that for a long time. That's a wonderful question. So Dawson's publishing career began in 1920 with an essay on sort of human nature. And it's a key for interpreting his work because Dawson's view of the human person was that sort of the mind and soul of the human person is consubstantial with the body of the person. And that's true of culture as well, because culture is made up of people. Yeah. And so the way that Dawson used to talk about this, he drew from a tradition from French sociology coming from Frederick LaPlay, ideas about how culture is made up of four elements. Okay. On the one side, you have the intellectual, spiritual side, and we can represent that with an I, right? I for intellect. Okay. Then you imagine a line underneath that. And then below that, you have the letters F, W, and P. Okay. F stands for folk. So that's like the society, the government, the, you know, the sociological kinds of ways of life. W stands for work. So the economics and P stands for place, right? The geographical foundations of culture and what a culture is, is a unity of those four elements. It's, it's a community of ways of thinking. It's a community of social customs. It's a community of work ways and it's a community of a place. Yeah. And how culture develops through time is an interaction between those different categories right so you have say a new religion comes in like say islam into arabia and it suddenly changes the whole way of life of the culture the the folkways change the economics changes the relation to place changes new kinds of architecture all kinds of things right but it works vice versa too so if you change say a material element like let's say you bring in um, firearms into mandan indian culture in north dakota where i'm from in 1750 they acquire Arms and horses for the first time, right? So that would fit under the W. You change the W in the culture, and boom, it changes their relationship to their place, the way they hunt buffalo, changes the, the structure of their society, and even changes their, their view of the sacred. event. so, a culture is a dynamism between these different elements. But there's another layer to the dynamism, which is the relationship between a culture and another culture. So you can have influences. From either one of those elements, either a culture moves or you get a new idea comes in from another culture. And so that is what propels history. That's like the dynamics of history right there. That's how it works. Is humans sort of developing in relation to their environment and in relation to each other.
1: So what would just zooming in a little bit and putting these ideas into practice, what do you think Dawson would say about American culture, I guess you'd call it today? Because I mean his 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 work on culture is, I mean, his view is that religion is central to the definition of any culture. And we kind of live in a post-Christian era, right? So I'm I'm curious what he would look at specifically, maybe let's generalize and say Western and then zoom in a little bit to America itself. What would he say about kind of some of the trends away from, you know, organized religion, uh, a religion, you know, just essentially, I guess but we could call de facto um, atheism on, on many levels. What would he say about American culture and perhaps it's drift towards maybe more like hollow consumerism and a religion that has, you know, taken the place perhaps of of Christianity?
0: Yeah. Well, I want to preface that by returning to an earlier question about Dawson's view of culture. So he thinks of culture in, in these two ways of the humanistic view which is often sort of prescriptive, like how things like, should be, and also this socio-historical, sort of descriptive view coming from the social sciences. here how things are, right? So facts are important, but so too are, you know, what's, what's true and what's good. Um, and that's, so the Dawson brings this unique insight. He's able to sort of analyze culture in terms of a social scientist, but he also wants to talk about how culture should be, right? Is sort of a prophet, yeah. And so he's uniting those two views of culture. And so I think if we bring that perspective into our understanding of modern culture, it's super helpful. So Dawson is first looking at, okay, descriptively, like what's going on in the modern West, right? And and certainly, you know, what's coming out of the Great War and then World War Two, and the increasing sort of fragmentation of culture in many ways, and definitely the um, the struggle of Christianity to maintain a sort of a public presence is certainly part of the 20th century experience. And so as part of his analysis, he's looking at, well, look, Throughout world history, religion is always a constitutive ingredient to culture. So it doesn't just disappear, right? Even as we call ourselves a secular age, and that's true if you look at it from the point of view of Christianity. But if you look at it from other points of view, it's, a, it's an entirely new sacral age in which you have new gods that are being born. And so Dawson says that the religious sort of instinct of the human person can sort of be disguised underneath kind of philosophical forms or political forms And what we call it secularization, but what's actually going on is sort of this birth of new deities. And this was especially startling in the 1920s with figures like Mussolini and Lenin and Hitler and the gods of class and state and race for which people were willing to kill just like with the ancient Aztecs gods and other ancient gods, people are willing to kill for them. And they did so. And there were rivers of blood through the 20th century. And so this new kind of sacralization that happens in the, that's not, Dawson doesn't use that word sacralization. That's a more modern term, but he means that process, that kind of sacralization, finding a worldly reality that you can sort of hold up as the principle of unity in your, in your culture. Yeah. So with that sort of large sort of like comparative religion background, then Dawson zooms in and looks at, okay, what are the things happening in, and Western culture. And the first major distinction he makes is between sort of the continental Europe and then the English-speaking world. Because on the continent, you have these ideologies that I just mentioned a minute ago, right? But in the English-speaking world, thanks be to God, we, we didn't have any one of those specifically. But we have tendencies toward this kind of totalitarianism as well. They just they take on different, different forms, more subtle forms, that aren't always in terms of politics. Sometimes they're in terms of sort of just otherworldly realities like consumerism and and these sorts of things. But Dawson was recognizing the problem, sort of a, a monistic culture that's being pushed in the particularly English speaking world through things like public education, the spread of suburbia after World War II, the, the way that our landscape, especially in America, all looks the same. You know, you have a certain kind of hotel that you go to and you go visit Pittsburgh and it looks the same if you go to San Francisco. Not that that's intrinsically bad, but it's indicative of a kind of monistic culture that's, that's out there that sort of leveling down human existence and eliminating a certain kind of spiritual freedom. And so Dawson saw that as a as an alarm bell and he especially honed in on this this problem of education. And the hope that he saw especially in the United States of course was our strong tradition of of independent education and thinking through Christian private schools or other religion private schools, you know, organizations like ISI and who keep alive that that tradition. He looked to that with hope, but he definitely saw this, this problem of of a thor- of a sort of a, a monistic kind of totalitarian instinct very much alive in, in our own world too
2: I want to return to some of those what we call I guess we call them political religions or some of this 20th century totalitarian ideologies but while we're on the subject of education I know that Dawson cared a lot in his life especially I think more towards the end of his life about education and pedagogy and teaching so I'm wondering I guess he's such maybe an underrated figure or a figure that's being rediscovered in some ways. I know some of his books are being reprinted. Obviously you've now dedicated a whole work to his thoughts. So uh, what are some of the things that are practices, habits of mind that Dawson was interested in or wanted or thought would be very important for people to learn and to cultivate in their own personal lives to, as you say, I guess, to maintain that sense and spirit and tradition of independence that we have in America?
0: Well, he talked about his great book, Crisis of Western Education. I mean, he talks about the, just the rich inheritance that we all have, but are so ignorant of. We just walk through our day, we go shopping, we do this and this, you know, completely oblivious to this, you know, hundreds of years of just incredible richness that lies behind us. And the, the need that we have through our educational endeavors to become familiar with that inheritance which is free for anybody who wants to engage with it. So in order for there to be peace in the world, there has to be understanding between different civilizations. But for understanding between civilizations, a civilization has to know itself first. You have to know who you are before you can enter into a relationship with somebody else, right? So for Western civilization, we have to know who we are. And one of the important, not the only, but one of the important ingredients of Western civilization is Christian culture in many different varieties, you know, Spain and Greece. And you have, it looks different, Orthodox, Protestant. It looks different, different places. That's fine. But there's deep values that are, that are consistent across that tradition of Christian culture that help us to understand Western civilization from within. Sure. Islam was part of Spain for a long time and Jewish tradition and various native traditions. They're all important too, but Christianity definitely shaped very deeply the the fundamental values of, uh, of Western civilization. And unless we understand that, that cultural component, those deeper values, it's going to be difficult for us to understand what Western civilization even is, which makes it difficult to relate to other peoples and understand international relations and contemporary politics and all that kind of thing. So he would say, yeah, we need to recover that tradition. And even if you're not Christian, even if you're not religious, we need to recover that kind of 18th century sense that religion is important just for society and for understanding reality. And so even if he hoped that even if you're not religious you should still have an understanding of why religion is important to a civilization in general and Christianity into the west in particular.
1: So as a as a stu- former student of political science one of the seminal texts that I think most political science students will have read and that I read during undergrad was Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations and it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, just Having that understanding of how different cultures become kind of embedded in the DNA of certain you know locales and, and nations, and before you know the modern nation state empires and Huntington, you know he was writing at the time of the, in terms of post Cold War relations. So I'm interested to hear more about you know how would that adversarial model look to Dawson, who's interested in culture over all of human lifetimes. And you know, if you could also perhaps for listeners who have not read Huntington's text on uh, the Clash of Civilizations, if you could kind of bring them up to speed on on that thesis as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. great. Well, first of all, I think so. Dawson was always nervous about simplification. Right. Simplification. So it's where you take sort of one insight, and then we want to use that to try to explain everything. And this is a constant thing people do. You know, in in sociology. Emile Durkheim did it by reducing religion to kind of society and Marx did it in terms of economics and class. So Dawson is really sort of in tune to that problem in modern thought. And it seems to me that Huntington is sort of a, an example of this problem of, of simplification. Because, you know, first, two, two things. First of all, a civilization is like a superculture. A civilization has a lot of different cultures in it. So if you think of the Western civilization, right? Well, you know. If you're in uh, the, the 10th century or 11th century Spain, I mean, Western civilization looked very Islamic, and you had a lot of Jewish and Christian scholars coming to uh, to Islamic Spain to learn, you know, from them. So there's uh, there's inbuilt tensions even in conflicts within civilizations, not even just between civilizations, and that's definitely something that Huntington has been criticized for sort of missing. That, but he's also, I think, missing a bigger a bigger picture which is that change in interaction through history happens in in several different ways, some of which I mentioned earlier, right? That you have cultures exchange material goods, like guns and horses I mentioned, or you have interactions, say, you know, Islam comes out of Arabia and travels across Northern Africa, right? Changing, uh, say, ancient Egypt was no longer ancient pagan or even ancient Christian anymore. It was now islamic right so you have these peaceful transfers constantly like along the silk Road through eurasia you have constant peaceful interaction through trade and through ideas and all kinds of things that are not rooted fundamentally in in conflict and so huntington is trying to say look that you know in the in the post-cold war world you know the, the main conflicts are going to be now between civilizations and you have you know hindu civilization and western civilization Sure, I mean that's part of it. Yeah, I mean we can see those conflicts all the time right now in the in the war in Ukraine. We can see that that conflict between civilizations happening. But it's it's too much of a simplification. An alternative concept maybe is helpful is one that was actually created by the uh, a previous president of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei. this idea of the dialogue of civilizations concept. He gave a a speech in 2000 to the UN about this idea. And interestingly, there's actually been an article published on Katami and Dawson, sort of comparing their two visions of international relations by a gentleman named Stephen Carter for the journal Islam and Christian Muslim Relations back in 2007. And so this, this model, you know, is the idea that, look, there's possibility of peaceful learning from civilizations. Like Western classical music being super popular in China right now, right? There's a a peaceful cultural transfer there that helps um, bridge mutual misunderstandings that often happen. So, yeah, conflict's a part of history, but that's not the only story. There's a lot more to it than that in understanding the parts of civilizations as cultures and understanding how they have interacted with each other uh, in really creative and fruitful ways through the past.
2: That's a follow-up to that, it sounds, to use Dawson's terminology, that would be like a, so- a socio-historical analysis of how things work, the dynamics of cultural exchange. I guess in today's phraseology, we use cultural appropriation, but I remember when I, even just when I was in high school, like seven or eight years ago, it was, oh, I forget, now I'm forgetting the term, but it was understood that cultural change can be a dynamic force that's part of the progress understood properly, that things are getting better, things are improving, things are changing, complexifying, becoming dynamic. This is like an age of exploration, for instance. Yeah. Oh, cultural diffusion, that was the term. Diffusion, yeah, or acculturation, maybe another, another word there too, but yeah, cultural diffusion, yeah. Yeah, but in terms of the sort of that normative element or the descriptive, or the sorry, the prescriptive elements of Dawson's thought, how would Dawson, I guess, maintain this sort of complex and rich, really rich, I think, maybe you call it, I think, a cultural relativism, but an appreciation of different cultures, the way they interact and learn from each other without collapsing into just outright moral and cultural relativism in a way that we can't, we have to abandon all judgment.
0: Yeah, right. No, that's that's a great question. So Dawson was really worried when he was in America, visiting different Catholic universities in particular, he saw like the neo-scholasticism, which was very kind of universalistic. And he thought that, and partly in reaction to that, cultural relativism trend that was happening at the time. And he was really worried that Catholics who would get so used to that kind of universalist thinking would be kind of t- totally naive and unprepared to deal with that kind of cultural relativistic worldview. And indeed, Dawson was very correct in, in being worried about that, because by the 1960s and 70s, a lot of those Catholic scholars were, you know, leaving the, leaving the faith or leaving the religious orders and all kinds of things. So Dawson, I think his insights into cultural relativism are super important as an as a authentic Response to the problem of both uh, ethical relativism and a false sense of universalism, and here's here's the key. I think, Tom, this is something I've tried to think about and reflect on a quite a bit because I think it's so interesting and important. And I don't have the final answer on it, but my my insight is actually coming from poetry here. All right, so if you are you know the 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 world is contained in a grain of sand. In other words a little particular cultural artifact can reveal something that's deep and universally true. So there's a connection between like the ontological basis of reality, like the the deepest sense of reality that can be seen from any different culture. So whether you're in China or Japan, if you're looking for the truth, you can peer through your own cultural artifacts. Sure. There's lots of dust there and distractions and, you know, but you can peer through it and find a deeper truth that's able to connect with People in different cultures on the other side of the world who also are trying to peer through their cultures at that deeper sense of reality. Music is one place, uh like that great film, The Mission, right? And then playing the music, and the native population becomes entranced in in the, the beauty of the Western music and is attracted to it. Or uh mathematics, the certain elements of the scientific method and things, art. There's there's deeper principles, like say the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that's transcending cultures. In this amazing kind of way, through human reason, we would say maybe from like the atomistic tradition, you'd say like the, the the universals, you know goodness, truth, and beauty. you're peering at those universals, but you're doing it through the different cultural traditions and deep down in that sense of being is where the reconciliation is, I think.
1: I'm reminded of especially communism and how it kind of eliminated that that basis of truth that you know, once you pierce through. Kind of all of the the frills that arise in culture, you do have that basis of truth, and perhaps that's and if you could you know remark on this as maybe how Dawson would, the the most pernicious aspect of of ide- ideology is perhaps especially you know whether we're looking at Chinese communism or Soviet is trying to eliminate that the the natural order of things into a disordered state because of ideology, and you know especially with we have, uh, I've been viewing a lot of political ads by no no choice of my own, (laughs) just by, you know, watching television or YouTube. Even when I'm, you know, trying to play like videos for my baby, like nursery rhymes or whatever on YouTube, I'm like presented with a slew of political ads. And with elections coming up, I'm kind of thinking of how culture and politics, where they fuse. And obviously something that has, I think, been, a motive for a lot of parents lately has been just seeing how that's presented itself in in education, how ideology is specifically specifically things like gender ideology and I mean, quite frankly, some very inappropriate things appearing in classrooms for kids as early as like the kindergarten age. How would you say, you know, your interpretation of where culture and politics meet? Is it downstream, upstream? what's the relation between the two?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. great question. You know, Dawson was, was certainly a conservative. He didn't write as like a, a you know, a supporter of the conservative party or anything in Britain, but, uh, and he didn't even write, I mean, he wrote a lot about politics, but definitely at the, at the broad kind of level. So he wrote several books on it. And, um, but I found, actually in my research, I found a, a manuscript, a handwritten manuscript of Dawson's from 1932 called Conservatism. So actually, I was extremely excited to find that in the archives in uh, the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota and uh, got it published in Political Science Reviewer back in 2010. It's a wonderful lesson. I was reviewing it, preparing for uh, for talking with you guys today. And and I, I was struck by how Dawson you know, thinks of conservatism as a way of going about politics that recognizes this sort of organic nature of society. So this is in in response to what you were saying about ideologies, kind of like kind of trying to level the playing field in a way, um, an ideological construction of reality. And um, conservatism in that sense is the opposite of an ideology. And we talk about that a lot in conservative circles and what that actually even means. But I think... It's it's trying to look at reality the way it is. Look, society is made up of very diverse and different kinds of economic interests and political interests. And conservatism believes, has the hope, the confidence that those different groups can work together. We don't have to try to eliminate, you know, to have an an ideological deconstruction. We're going to eliminate everybody who doesn't agree with this view, (laughs) right? We're going to take them out. No, we we actually believe that there can be a working together between these, these different groups in this sort of organic model of society. So, and at the same time, there's a conserving, a conserving of traditions of of our, of the civilization that the political regime is part of, right? So there's a conserving there. But then the third point about conservatism, according to Dawson, is one maybe we can dwell on a little bit here, which is its relation to, to religion. So this is, this gets at the relationship between politics and religion. So, one of the problems in the 20th century was the, the decline of Christianity, which creates a vacuum, kind of a spiritual vacuum that opens up. Uh, many commentators note this. This isn't just Jocelyn, uh, particularly after the First World War. Okay? So whenever you have a vacuum, you have a great risk of whatever is floating around in the surrounding atmosphere gets sucked into that vacuum. Yeah? And uh, on continental Europe, that was a very scary thing. Racial ideologies and all kinds of terrible things. So, into that spiritual vacuum arises what's called political religion, which is a phrase Dawson used, but it's, and it's been used and extended since him by numerous different scholars, Western and non-Western ever since, to help us understand modern politics. And so, here's where political religion is where you, you sort of take your ultimate values in terms of politics, and you want to organize your whole society sort of around those ultimate values. Okay. And one of the, the issues today, in, in response to kind of the, the secular kind of political religion we have in our age, it seems to me, one of the responses amongst some conservatives and, and religious people is a kind of religious political religion. <laughs> uh, I think that the word, is, the phrase sometimes is like Catholic integralism, right? this kind of view. And so we want it. So in other words, there's a reaction. There's wanting to create sort of an alternative political religion, but let's just do it with the right religion, you know? And And one of the fascinating questions that, that I was thinking about with Tom was uh, you know what does Dawson stand on that kind of that question, and I think an important distinction has to be made here. So first of all, he would applaud the effort of Catholic integralism to want to relate religion to the public, the public sphere, and, and culture. I mean, he's all about that, right? The relationship between religion and culture is a constant throughout world history, and is is a really important foundation of any kind of renewal that can happen in the modern world. However the relationship between religion and culture is different than the relationship between church and state. Okay. There's a distinction there here is where he would, I think, very much disagree with the the Catholic kind of integralist um, position. So here's what, here's what Dawson wrote in his uh, book, religion in the modern state quote, political religion is an offense alike to religion and to politics. It takes from Caesar what belongs to him of right and fills the temple with the noise and dust of the marketplace. The only really, and specifically Christian politics, are the politics of the world to come. And they transform social life not by competing with secular politics on their own ground, but by altering the focus of human thought and opening the closed house of secular culture to the free light and air of a larger and more real world. 1935. That, I think, would be fundamental to Dawson's approach. So he is a conservative of the kind who uh, integrates this deep tradition— of the, lib- the liberal tradition of individual freedom and free politics educating for liberty i mean that liberty especially as world war ii comes on dawson is writing more about the importance of individual liberty by the 1940s uh integrating that into his like, conservative values but also this kind of like liberal tradition values of the importance of individual freedom right he's really into working to integrate those things you know give unto caesar what is caesar's and unto god what is god's that in- the essential distinction between church and state is is super important and so that means that opens up a space and a freedom, right? Because that's the space of culture in particular is between church and state. Neither church nor state should control it. It has its own values, its own dynamics. There's a proper freedom in the sphere of culture. Naturally, both state and church influence it. But it's the role of intellectuals and of institutions like ISI and universities and cultural institutions to maintain that like public sphere, that cultural uh, sphere, and not sort of just automatically say, oh, well, we just need to get reinforcements from the church or the state to, you know, Buckle this whole thing up together. Well, no, that's like that's like letting go of our of our of our duties.
2: This maybe is will be the last question as we're. This will be probably probably a good place to end off on. But in your chapter on the containment of politics, you said that Dawson wanted to protect the claims of culture against the claims of politics, and I think this is you were sort of alluding to this. And so I wanted to probe this a bit deeper. Is with I guess between seeing culture as being, I guess, in between politics and the state, what, I guess, how does that, I'm thinking, one of the things I'm thinking about is sort of Leo Strauss's problem of modernity as being the theological political problem is that we've ruptured church and state. And so now a very, I guess, natural response by religious people, fervent religious people is to just put them back together, Christian nationalism, Catholic integralism, whatever you'd like to call that. But it sounds like given the state of things that we are in, now that we are in the theological political problem, now that we are in modernity, there is no escaping. So even it won't even be enough to just fuse those back together again, because it's, I guess it's just functioning, like you said, as a religious political religion, as opposed to a secular, quote unquote, secular political religion, religion like fascism or Nazism or communism. But I guess in a healthy society and a healthy polity, how, what does that look like in between the interaction between those three? And where we, I guess, where would Dawson point to in history, in, in our past, in our traditions of where that has worked and been uh, could be a source of inspiration again?
0: Great. Great. Let me give you two negative examples and two positive examples. All right. So two negative examples of this like fusion of of church and state gone wrong. All right. First, Byzantine Empire and the, sort of the Orthodox church being fused with the state, Cesaro-Papism. Dawson points out that that sort of rigid structure led to two major problems. One, the rise of Islam, which was a direct reaction against that in many ways, and then the split from Western Christianity, right? So disaster there. The other disaster was in the early modern period when you have like, things like Puritanism in New England, and then you have like, the, the Catholic and Protestant monarchies that were absolutist in Europe and sort of trying to control religion well this created this huge levels of reservoirs of resentment beneath the surface because you can't force people's souls and so that explodes in the secularism of the 18th century and modern modern history i mean dawson lays a lot of blame for the secular world on christians the way that we have related to politics has been been so problematic over the last couple hundred years that uh that's the part of the problem of the secular modern world okay so those are two negative examples two positive examples so Austin points also to the 18th century, to the English-speaking world, and in, instead of having that sort of absolutist model, you have a cultural model. Okay, so what I mean is that you have writers, English writers, Dr. Johnson, and uh, so many other the great figures of the of the 18th century, for Burke to, to, and everybody else, who are writing and trying to influence the wider culture of Britain. Right. So the French had Voltaire, but the, and the English didn't have Voltaire. Thankfully, they had other they had counter Voltaire's. And so what that meant is that actually during the course of the 18th century, British society became more religious rather than less religious. Right. It was a renewal. It was a renewal, partly with the help of the, the Methodist movement. But all these the great tradition of English writing is what helped preserve English culture from the horrors of French revolutions and radical atheism and secularism on the continent. Right. So that's a, that's a cultural based model. Not a let's bring church and state model together. That's a cultural based model that Dawson points to. And then the second positive example I'll I'll give you is not from Dawson's, from my other work, which has been recently on the history of the pro-life movement and seeing how, okay, even opponents of the pro-life movement recognize it's one of the most successful and powerful political movements of the late 20th century. How did that happen? Well, it was started by Catholics. But Catholics quickly realized that they needed to engage with other denominations and make it not just a Christian, but a broad-based American rights-based movement, drawing interestingly from the liberal tradition, actually, of individual human rights to create the pro-life movement in the 1960s. So there you have church being very active, like, the, the, like it was the Catholic bishops that started you know, some of the, the main pro-life organizations, but they turned it over to the lay laity and even non-Catholic leadership. To, because they wanted it to go out, like laity are supposed to do, into the cultural sphere and affect the wider world, which it has done profoundly. Uh, there's a lot of work to do yet, but profoundly affected uh, the, the wider world. So that, again, is this cultural-based model rather than trying to directly seize the reins of power, sort of indirectly influencing the reins of power through different you know, nominations to the Supreme Court and blah, 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 you know, but over time, right? Over time. So that's what I give you.
1: Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, Doctor Stewart. But thank you so much for coming on the the podcast, and I mean, teaching me a lot about Christopher Dawson and our viewers, as or our listeners rather, as well. And if people want to follow more of your work and read you, or maybe social media, where can they find you?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, just uh, my website at the University of Mary. Uh, the history program lists a lot of my books. They're also available on on Amazon and and the different publishers, Sophia Press and Catholic University of America Press. And, and then I have YouTube videos that I have on Christopher Dawson and also on my other area, which is interested in the Enlightenment and the Catholic Enlightenment and all these sorts of things. And those are YouTube videos available online
1: excellent well thank you so much again dr stewart and thank you for listening to conservative conversations with isi if you have enjoyed this podcast please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members including the intercollegiate review select modern age articles isi books and of course this podcast thanks again for listening don't forget to write in review and we will see you next time on conservative conversations with isi